the coaching hot seat. Who should and shouldn't be on it? And with the top 10 matchup in Gainesville this weekend between Auburn and Florida, we dive into some classics. Let's get into it. And it was BYOG, bring your own guts. Fourth and five, the national championship on the line. Got the big man. I think Notre Dame got it on Put it on the board for Bama. Turn, turn, pose free. And Lewis caught it on the deflection. Lewis is going to score. It's picked off. Breaks free. They won't catch him, I don't believe. Fires to the end zone. He's going for the corner. He's got it. There goes Davis. Oh my God! Davis. It's caught. It's caught. It's caught. Oh, is that a good game or what? What's going on, everybody? Michael Kirkering here, Let's Talk College Football Podcast. There's been a lot going on this week, mostly concerning that new California bill, the Fair Pay to Play Act that was just signed a couple days ago. And I'm planning on doing an entire really long in-depth podcast either end of this week, probably next week, maybe even the week after. I want to make sure it's really good for you guys where I'm going to be breaking down the entire situation, whether it's how the system works now, how it doesn't work now, because there's a lot of confusion on what is already legal and illegal and against the rules and everything. Then I'm going to give you some of my opinions, and then I'm going to break down what the new law is, what other states are doing, and then go into where I think the future is going to go, talk about where some big-headed guys think the future is going to go, and just talk about the entire scenario because it is super important. I mean, college sports is changing for better or worse, depending on how you look at it. And I'm going to get into that eventually. That's probably going to be my most in-depth podcast I've ever done. So stay tuned for that coming out in the next couple weeks. But anyway, today I want to talk about the coaching hot seats. Now, every single year, there's coaches that get put on the hot seat. Every year we have coaches fired. It seems like every year we also have at least one coach fired in the middle of the season. And that already happened with this last week that went by. Rutgers fired their coach after they got beat 52 to nothing to Michigan, a struggling Michigan team. And it looks like maybe Greg Schiano is going to come in and replace him. But anyway, we'll see. Who cares? It's, it's Rutgers. The fact that they're a Big Ten school is still beyond me. But whatever. Maybe they'll get out of the hell that they're in now. But what I mainly want to talk about is why some coaches shouldn't be on the hot seat. Two coaches specifically that are always on the hot seat. Well, one of them's always on the hot seat. The other one, people always act like he should be. And I really don't think either of them should be. They're both basically in the same situation where they're constantly being compared to their rival. And you should be compared to your rival. And standards should be set, especially at these two schools. But sometimes you just got to live in reality. Now, the two coaches I'm talking about are Gus Malzahn at Auburn and Jim Harbaugh at Michigan. Now, let's go to Gus first, because I've actually talked about this before, but I don't understand how any Auburn fan, booster, supporter can honestly look at what Gus Malzahn has done in Auburn and have a problem with it. 
I can understand you thinking, hey, we we didn't win a national championship. We we maybe sort of underperformed a couple of times. But the idea that Auburn is capable or deserves something significantly better than what Gus Malzahn has given them is kind of ridiculous to me for two reasons. One, forget Alabama, forget the rest of the SEC. What Auburn has done under Gus Malzahn has been good, okay? Let's not forget he's the offensive coordinator in 2010 when Auburn wins the national championship. Repeat, wins the national championship, okay? They, they won a national title, kind of, you know, the biggest deal in college football, the, the ultimate prize. Then he leaves for a couple seasons. Then he comes back in as the head coach, and in year one, 2013, Mind you, in 2011 and 12, Auburn was pretty much god-awful, especially in 2012. Losing record. Gus Malzahn comes in, and in 2013, that Auburn team goes 13-1. and Or, sorry, they go 13-2 and over the course of the season. They make it to the national championship game, and they lose to a loaded, absolutely tremendous Florida State team. A team that they had on the ropes, by the way. Got an early lead to... And sometimes talent just outweighs what you're able to do. And let's talk about that 2013 Auburn team. That 2013 Auburn team, yes, they're known as one of the luckiest teams in college football history. But a lot of times luck comes from culture and coaching. So like I said, in 2012, Auburn was terrible. And then in 2013, all of a sudden, something changes. Auburn's good. Now, they do lose a game early in that season to LSU. And they actually lose that game pretty bad, I think, like, 35 to 7 or something in, in like a downpour rainstorm type of game full of mud they lose that game so auburn still isn't ranked they're coming off a bad season then they lose an early game to lsu in a blowout so they're unranked then they turn it on the rest of the season bam 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 close game after close game they beat texas a&m a good johnny menzel team and in that game, I'm pretty sure Texas A&M was ranked 7th. Auburn was like in the 20s. Well, they win that game. It was a close game. They sacked Johnny Menzel at the end to ensure the victory. Then you know the story. They go down the stretch. Now all of a sudden, they're like 6-1, and 7-1. They've got people's attention. Then the Georgia game happens. The miracle at Jordan-Hare. They catch the Hail Mary touchdown. They beat Georgia. They go into the Iron Bowl in the top five. It's number one versus number four in Jordan-Hare epic classic back and forth game and then the kick six happens giving auburn an 11 and 1 regular season record and the west division title in the sec they go on to the sec championship game where they play a top 10 missouri team who was i think 11 and 1 going to that game themselves they put on a great show it's a shootout back and forth game they win that game they're sec champions ohio state loses the big 10 championship game and you get a national title appearance against number one florida state and that was also a classic national title game one of the best that we've had and auburn comes up short just barely because Jameis winston's able to drive the Knolls down the field on the last drive and, and get a touchdown to win by four points then 2014 happens, Auburn takes a slight step back in the terms of they don't win the SEC, they don't make it to a national title game, but they're still a very good competitive year. There were a lot of fun games that year. If you're an Auburn fan, I remember them beating South Carolina in the shootout. They beat uh, Old Miss in what was a classic game. They don't beat Alabama, but we still had another classic Iron Bowl. Okay, they lose. Whatever, Gus Malzahn, 10 year off to a good start. 
2015, they take a pretty big step back. They they just aren't the team they were the last two years. They don't have Nick Marshall at quarterback anymore. They don't have their good receivers. Obviously, the Trey Masons, the running backs are gone. They kind of take a step step back. 2016, they take another step forward. I think they only go eight and four, but they manage to get their way into a Sugar Bowl. Which, by the way, New Year's Six game, if you can't go to the playoff or national title, that's kind of your next goal, a New Year's Six bowl appearance. Now, they did lose to Oklahoma in that game, but come on, an 8-4 and four year when you're kind of mediocre in the SEC, which means you're probably still pretty good, but they go to a Sugar Bowl. How can you complain about going to a Sugar Bowl? Maybe if you go to like a bunch of Sugar Bowls every year and you never get over that hump, you're looking for something better, but you went to a freaking Sugar Bowl. Okay, so four years in, Auburn has gone to a national title game, competed for an SEC championship two years in a row, although they don't get there in in 14, as we mentioned, and then in 16, they go back to a New Year's Six Bowl, and then 17 happens. 17, Auburn has a crazy difficult schedule. They lose to Clemson on the road early. Then they lose, I think, to LSU, maybe, in a comeback, or I forget what their second loss was that year, but then they rally, right? They beat Georgia, who's number one that year. They beat them pretty good. Then they knock off Alabama, and then they're headed to the SEC championship game 10-2 and with a rematch against Georgia. Everybody's saying if they win that game, they're probably going to be the first two-loss team in the playoff, and because Wisconsin lost later that night, if Auburn would have won, they would have been that team in the playoff, but... Georgia wins the rematch. They kind of win it handily, actually. And Auburn drops to 10-3. and So they make the Peach Bowl. Again, another New Year Six game. Now, they did lose to UCF, but UCF was really, really good that year. Arguably could have made the, or should have been in the playoff. And that was a good bowl game. They lose. So they go 10-4. and They do have four losses that year, but, I mean, probably four of the best losses you could ever find. And they won 10 games. Again. Okay. And then last year happened, and they kind of do their thing where they take a step back. You know, they're more of an 8-4, eight, 7-5 eight and four, seven and five team. They don't make a New Year's Six game. But at the start of this year, they're in really good position. They are number seven going into this game against Florida. Okay, they've already beaten two good teams this year. Gus Malzahn's calling plays again. The whole point I'm trying to get at is, in what world do you come up with Gus Malzahn should have been fired for doing any of that stuff? Especially when you consider the main factor in that he's playing in the SEC West in the era of Nick Saban. Now, maybe for some people, that's the reason why they think he should be fired is because they don't really care what Auburn does. As long as Alabama is doing better, it's never going to be good enough. And I kind of understand that with the whole rivalry thing. A lot of schools, right? Florida State, Florida, Florida State, Miami, Ohio State, Michigan, in Auburn and Alabama, you're pretty much judged versus what you do against your rival. But I do think you have to have level head here when you consider Nick Saban is the greatest coach in the history of college football, and Alabama's on a crazy dynasty that will probably never be repeated. So you're never in a million years going to find someone that gets you up there at that Alabama level. Gus Malzahn's the only active coach in the SEC who's beaten Saban. And he's done it twice. And a couple of the losses were close. Now, Alabama's obviously had some blowout victories against Auburn, even with Malzahn, but they're Alabama. Auburn, you aren't Alabama. You never will be. When Nick Saban retires from Alabama, they'll probably never be the same crazy dynasty team that they are right now. This is just reality. You can't ask a coach or a team 
to do anything comparable to what Alabama is doing. They're not. It's not Steve Spurrier and Bobby Bowden in the '90s, where hey, they were both legends. But look at those two schools. They met as top five to ten teams every year in the '90s. Florida State did win two titles in that 14-year run that they had, and but Florida only won one title. So they were able to go back and forth, and they took titles away from each other. The coaching matchup there was even. The talent matchups there were even. Alabama and Auburn over this decade have never been on even footing when it comes to talent, when it comes to coaching. Alabama gets that notch every single time, and Auburn still is able to come away with a couple of big wins. They beat them in 17, right? Their defense was better than Alabama that game. They, they kind of made Alabama look bad. I didn't think Bama should have made the playoff that year because of that performance. But that's another story. And then obviously in 2013, I mean, you could argue they kind of get lucky. Yeah, on the last play, they run the kickback. There's a little luck involved, but they were toe-to-toe with Alabama that whole game. It's one of the best games in college football history. I love rewatching that one. The whole point is, Gus Malzahn may never get you another title, but what is out there that's better than him that you can get right now? I, I don't think there is. I've always talked about how Texas A&M, I like what they did because I always talk crap on these SEC schools and other schools that have basically gotten rid of coaches just for not being Saban, right? Look what Tennessee did. They got rid of Philip Fulmer because they were like, you know what? At this point, nine and three is probably our ceiling and we want national titles. Well, look what's happened since then. They pretty much haven't been relevant in the national sense since Philip Fulmer, since the mid-2000s, since around the 2006-2007 seasons were the last time you remember having Tennessee with a number next to their name in the ranking where it actually meant something. Butch Jones had that one season where they kind of were ranked and won a couple of decent games, but you still never took them seriously, especially considering those were the Alabama days and they were, they were never going to beat them. So I think a lot of schools need to just live in the era of, hey, we can't go better than 9-3. and three. But that doesn't mean you just fire the coach because you want more unless you have a coach out there you know is better. So Texas A&M is the one school I've actually said, hey, I don't mind what they did. They had a consistently 8-4 and four coach under Kevin Sum- Sumlin. And they said, you know what? We're probably not going to do better than 8-4, and four, maybe 9-3 and three under this coach. Well, they didn't just fire him for the sake of firing him. They fired him because they said, you know who's out there willing to come here and we'll throw a bunch of money at? Jimbo Fisher, who, yeah, this year might be underperforming, but on paper, recently, he's a top four or five coach, right? There's Nick Saban, there's Urban Meyer, but he retired. Then it's probably Chris Peterson, Jimbo Fisher, a couple other names, right? Those are the coaches that have won national titles or come close to it. Obviously, Chris Peterson hasn't, but he's never been at a big program. So this idea that Auburn should have Gus Malzahn on the hot seat year after year, it's just, it's asinine to me. And I promise you, if you fire Gus Malzahn just for the sake of it, and you don't have a solid name that's going to replace him, you just fire him because you're like, well, we need to move on from him. Eight and four is not good enough for me. I'm an Auburn fan and I want us to be in the national title. We need to do what Bama's doing. Gus Malzahn isn't that guy. Let's get rid of him. Well, I promise you, you'll slip into even more mediocrity. You'll become Tennessee. You'll become what a lot of these schools have become that get rid of coaches. LSU got kind of lucky. They got rid of, rid, rid, excuse me, of less miles, basically for the same reasons, right? They're just like, well, we need to beat Bama. We need to beat Bama. We want national championships. Les Miles was pretty much a guaranteed 10-win season coach every single year. 
He won a national title, played for another one. Then Nick Saban came in, and Nick Saban had his number, and it caused everyone to lose their minds. Also, he wouldn't adjust his offense, but I've talked about that. Okay, cool, LSU finally did adjust their offense, but let's say Alabama still beats them by two touchdowns this year. Does it really matter? I think that makes Les Miles look kind of good because it wasn't an offensive issue. It's just Alabama is two touchdowns better than LSU. They have been for like five years now. Ever since that 2011 season and then again in 2012, all the games have gotten a little bit less competitive every year since 2012. That is the LSU-Alabama matchup. So I thought it was kind of a mistake to get rid of Les Miles. Now, I understand he wasn't going to change the offense. And LSU has gotten lucky. Orgeron stepped in, which I think we all thought was going to be a failure. He's managed it pretty well. I think it is a good fit for him down there. But do you really think LSU is going to win a national title? I mean, maybe. It's not impossible at all. They look like they might be the best team in the SEC this year. So who knows? But it's still a really tough task. One, you got to beat Bama. If you're LSU, you haven't done that since 2011. They haven't beat Bama since then. And let's say you do beat Bama. Well, then you got to hope that you actually beat Bama and that you didn't just beat a Bama team that has a bad defense finally, right? Because let's say you do beat Bama. You still got to go win the SEC championship game, which is always hard. Probably going to be playing an undefeated Georgia, maybe a Florida, whoever comes out of the East. That's going to be a tough game. Then you got to go win two more games against top four teams. It's just a tough task, okay, for anybody, especially a coach that's never done it before. Saban has the upper hand in the playoffs because he's been there every single year. He played in all the BCS National Championship games, and he just has that thing about him that makes him the experience trumps all and everything. Experience, confidence, any Saban team is going to have all of those things. Sometimes they lose, but they've been there year after year. It makes sense. Now back to the Gus Malzahn. I think this is all evidence that putting him on the hot seat is a mistake. Unless Urban Meyer is out there ready to come coach your program, yeah, then get rid of everybody. You know, if Saban, Meyer, Fisher, Chris Peterson, if one of those coaches is like you have inside information that they're going to be willing to come coach your your program, then get rid of whoever you have, even if you're already winning titles because you're just going to be better with those guys. If some name like that isn't out there that you could get, well, you should probably keep who you have, especially if you're going 8-4, and 9-3, and three, occasionally beating Nick Saban in Alabama. You should probably keep the guy you have. The only thing I'll say about Gus Malzahn that I think is actually a fair criticism is he's not the best recruiter. But it's kind of hard to pull in recruits when... As far as in-state goes, any kid's going to choose Bama over you if given the opportunity. Auburn doesn't get guys that Bama wants. Very, very rarely does that happen. Well, then it's like, okay, you're also not even the best team in your division in the conference, so if they don't go to Bama, they're probably still going to Georgia or LSU before you. And with Jimbo Fisher at A&M, he's a great recruiter. They're probably going to choose A&M over Auburn. But that's also, in a way, also really good evidence that Malzahn is a great coach because he does more with less. Auburn, usually under him, has always been competitive for the division, and they usually don't have the recruits that two, three, four other schools in the conference have. But a lot of fan bases are just confused, and there's like 15, 16 fan bases out there that think their school should be playing for national titles every year. And realistically, only about three of those fan bases are right. So... That's just the world we live in. The other big example, like I said, Jim Harbaugh. Let's talk about Jim Harbaugh in Michigan and him being on the hot seat. There's absolutely no reason 
for Michigan to put Jim Harbaugh on the hot seat. Let's talk about the past. Okay, Michigan is one of the pronounced programs in college football, right? Historically, they're one of the best. A lot of old national titles. But when was the last time Michigan was extremely, extremely relevant? I mean, they did win a co-national championship in 97 under Lloyd Carr. They got close to maybe competing for one in like 2006. But outside of that 2006 season, they've always been like maybe a Rose Bowl ceiling team. And when they got rid of Lloyd Carr, again, this is one of the schools that said, you know what, we think we're better than 10-2, and 9-3. We think we're better than Rose Bowls. We want national championship appearances. That's, that's what Ohio State's doing, our rival. So let's get rid of our legendary coach, Lloyd Carr, who won us a national title, who consistently gets us into Rose Bowls and has pretty good seasons. Let's get rid of him. Well, then they sucked, like absolutely sucked for like four years. I'm talking like three win seasons, five win seasons. Brady Hoke comes in, they have a decent season, but he's also just terrible, not good for the program. And Michigan, basically from 2008 to about 2014, was a non-relevant program. Maybe they gave us a couple classic Notre Dame games. They had the one year with Hoke where they were kind of decent. But that was it. Not to mention the year that they were good with Hoke, that was 2011, and Ohio State was on probation, and all their players were suspended, and they didn't have a head coach. So, whatever. Michigan was mediocre for a long time, and I'm talking, like, terribly mediocre. Like I said, three win seasons, five win seasons. Pathetic. Pathetic. Okay? And Jim Harbaugh comes in. Now, we know who Jim Harbaugh was before Michigan. A proven commodity. Okay? Turned Stanford into a winning program. Stanford. Stanford was the laughing stock of the Pac-12. For pretty much all the 2000s, and then all of a sudden Harbaugh comes in and they get Andrew Luck and big offensive linemen and they're competitive, and then David Shaw has kind of maintained that ever since. He is a good NFL coach. He's just an overall good coach. Also, he's from Michigan, played at Michigan. So there really wasn't a better fit in a guy that could turn around Michigan better than Jim Harbaugh, unless Urban Meyer was going to walk away from Ohio State to go to Michigan, which would never happen, unless Nick Saban was going to abandon Alabama to go coach at Michigan. There really wasn't a better fit at that time. So Harbaugh comes in and instantly turns the program around. 2015, his first year, I think they go 10-2 and or 9-3. and Yeah, I think they're 9-3 and that year. Yeah, they lose the Michigan State game, and it's embarrassing because the way they lost, but it was close, and I think Ohio State beats them bad that year, but that was a really, really good Ohio State team. Instantly, they're relevant again. Instantly, they're relevant. 2016, they're literally a yard or a couple inches away from making the college football playoff. And most people think that was a bad call in that Ohio State game that cost them their shot at the playoff. They go to an Orange Bowl that year. Okay? 17, they're okay. And then last year, yeah, we know Ohio State beat them and embarrassed them again, but they found themselves going into the Ohio State game with a chance to win and make the college football playoff. Michigan, what more do you want? I mean, I know what you want in a fantasy world. You want you want the playoff berth and you want a national championship. But is that really realistic? Was that ever going to happen while Urban Meyer was at Ohio State? No. 
And it's not going to happen this year because even though Urban Meyer's gone, and I think Ohio State will over the next four or five years have a slight decline. It's going to be in recruiting now that Meyer's gone. But right now, those are all Urban Meyer's recruits. They also have Justin Fields at quarterback. Their defense is amazing. If Ryan Day does win a national title with Ohio State, it's going to be this year or next year. And then he'll slowly decline into more of like a Trussell and Cooper type Ohio State program, which is still amazing. But Ohio State's just rolling at such a higher level than you that it's unrealistic and stupid, in my opinion, to ask any coach to come in and just get on that level consistently. And when you're a couple inches one game away from making the playoff, I'd say you basically are at that level. The ref could have called JT Barrett short of that first down in 2016, and then you're in the college football playoff. Okay? Last year, Ohio State just proved they still have better athletes, better speed, better coaching. They whooped up on Michigan. That's just kind of the way it is. In Michigan, you haven't beaten Ohio State where it really mattered since, I think, 2004. I don't think you've beat them in Columbus since, like, 2000. We're talking pre-9-11. Okay, yes, I know all the people yelling. Yes, I know Michigan did beat Ohio State in 2011. But again, that was the one year in the past 30 years where Ohio State was mediocre, had a losing season. I think they went 6-7 and seven that year. They lost their bowl game. But in 2011, they didn't have their head coach. Like, 10 starters, All-American guys, were suspended. They were also on probation. When Urban Meyer came in the very next year, 2012, they went undefeated. So from 2004 on, outside of 2011, Ohio State has beaten Michigan every year and a lot of times done it handily and a lot of times just had overall the better program. It's not even been close. So I understand, Michigan, if you're frustrated, but the idea that someone's going to come in and do better than Harbaugh, eh, I really don't see it. You better make damn sure that that guy is a dude who would come in and replace him because Harbaugh is the perfect fit at Michigan. So maybe right now, for the foreseeable future, 10 wins and like a Rose Bowl appearance, I think that's your ceiling right now. And sometimes you have to be okay with your ceiling and just understand we're not going to do better. So why make it worse? Why make it worse? Sometimes these hot seats and these fan bases, they, they just blow my mind. You got good stuff going there. You get to go watch your team win 9 to 10 games a year. Okay, as a Florida State fan, let me tell you right now, I would give anything to go back to a 9-10 win season. Yeah, national championships are great, but you know what sucks? Going 5 and 7. Going 3 and 8. That's that's nothing. That you don't even get excited. It's like the football season's not even there. You're like a ghost walking through it. It's depressing times. Michigan, you know what I'm talking about. You've been there recently. So I don't know why you're not just ecstatic at the fact that, hey, we're relevant again. Yeah, we're not going to win a national title, but we're relevant again. We get to be in the conversation every year. That's awesome. Just accept it and move on. And if you get lucky and do knock off Ohio State one of these years, then cool, take it. But honestly, you're asking for a little much, I think. Okay, let's move on. I'm not going to preview the matchup too much, but we all know that we have a top 10 matchup this week between Auburn and Florida. And this is an SEC matchup that it's, it's happened quite a fair amount of times. They used to play each other every year up until like, I think 2000 something when 
the divisions split and, and we've had realignment and conference changes since then. But I want to do a little bit of history diving and talk about two or three classic Florida Auburn games. The first one I want to talk about is 1997. You had number seven Florida at number six Auburn, a Steve Spurrier Florida team. Florida was the defending national champions. Some of the notable players, you had Damian Craig was the quarterback at Auburn. He's now a big-time recruiter. He's actually the guy responsible for bringing Jameis Winston to Florida State. A little fun fact there. Before he returned back to Auburn, I'm actually not sure what he's up to now. But anyway, Jesse Palmer got some quarterback time for Florida. And Fred Taylor was uh, the running back for Florida at the time. He was a big-time running back at Florida. So let's get into the game. This was a back-and-forth game, kind of a defensive battle. It was 10-10 at halftime. Then we get into the third quarter. Florida is up 17 to 10. And Auburn commits a huge fumble. Kind of in their own territory, pretty deep. It's returned to like the 10-15 yard line. Huge momentum switch. And then Jaquez Green for Florida takes her a seven-yard reverse in for a touchdown. And now Florida's up 24 to 10. That was a big deal. Now a couple series later, I think we're in the fourth quarter now, Auburn is backed up, and they throw an interception that Florida runs down, and the clock eventually runs out. Florida's able to milk it, and they win. But that was a fun back-and-forth game, a lot of big plays, especially on defense. I mean, both teams had numerous turnovers that were big momentum swingers, and that was just a fun game. I watched that game the other night. It was a classic. Another classic, probably the most classic Auburn-Florida game, and I remember this one. I was a sixth grader. This was the 2006 game. Florida was number two, playing at number 11, Auburn. Now, this game was also pretty much of a defensive battle. Some offensive plays, but remember, you had Chris Leak at quarterback for Florida. This was the year they went on to win the national championship. This is Urban Meyer's second year coaching. Now, this game was 17-11, to Florida at halftime. Now, that's important because I don't think Florida would score again for the rest of the game. And it all came down to this one big momentum-changing play. I remember this play one Pontiac game-changing performance play of the year or whatever this year. But in the third quarter, with about 10 minutes left, Florida's backed up into their own ter- territory, I think with inside the 20, maybe even the 15. And they're punting. And the punter kind of bobbles the snap turns around, tries to get the kickoff, and it's blocked. Auburn picks it up, scores a TD, and then they go up 18-17. to 17. And this is a full-blown turning point in the, in the game. After that, Auburn has all the momentum. Their defense turns it on after this. Fast forward to the fourth quarter with about 9 minutes and 20 seconds left. Leak is dropping back. He's getting pressure. He fumbles. Auburn recovers it. They go down the field, but then they miss a field goal with 3.16 left, which that would have made it a seven-point game, but it's still just a one-point game. Okay, so now Florida has the ball with three minutes left, and they're about to go. Well, then Leak throws an interception when he's under pressure. Auburn gets it, and then they kick a field goal with 30 seconds left. They end up winning 21-17, giving Florida their only loss. I think at the very end of that game, when Florida was trying to do like hook and ladders, Auburn ended up scoring again. So the final score might have been like 28-17 or something like that. But that was a classic game. Florida's only lost the year. Of course, they would go on to win the national championship against Ohio State. But that loss obviously put them in big jeopardy. 
that was a really fun game, really big year. And then I think in 2007, the very next year, Florida's the defending champions, and Auburn goes into Gainesville and wins on a field goal. And it was one of those scenarios where I think Auburn attempts the field goal, but Meyer calls a timeout like right before it goes off. And I think he missed it. Maybe he made it. It didn't matter. It was the practice attempt. And then with like no time on the clock, he drills the second one. Auburn wins. I think Florida lost like three or four games that year, but Tebow did win the Heisman in 2007. So anyway, those are just some classic Auburn-Florida games. Really excited for that game this weekend. I won't be able to watch it live, unfortunately, because I'm actually shooting a wedding for my main job as a videographer. So I'll be keeping the score updated on my phone, and I'll DVR it so that when I get home that night, I can relive it, see what happened. Hopefully it's a classic. It's really going to shake things up in the SEC because it's one of those games where Whoever loses, you kind of want to write off. Obviously, on paper, whoever loses is still totally alive for everything. But it's one of those games where, okay, if Auburn loses to Florida, Florida hasn't looked that great, then it's going to be hard to think that Auburn then beats LSU, Georgia, or Bama. And if Florida loses, kind of same thing. You don't think they're going to then beat Georgia and, and maybe some of their tougher games that they have. So obviously, on paper, like I said, the loser is still totally alive, especially if it's close. But it's one of those games where people, even though Florida is ranked in the top 10, not a lot of people outside of Gainesville really consider them to be a top 10 team. So it's a little interesting there. And then Auburn, coming into the season, a lot of people thought, hey, this is a 9-4 and team with that schedule. I, I was one of those people. But they beat Oregon in that opener, and then they beat down on Texas A&M, who's supposed to be pretty good. We don't know yet if A&M was just kind of overrated. I mean, A&M did almost lose to Arkansas last week, who is terrible. So we don't know if that's really the case or if Auburn is just really good. We know one thing. Auburn's defense is legit, absolutely legit. Definitely, I would say, probably the best defense in the SEC at this point. Does that mean they can beat Bama, though? Can they stop that offense? Can they score enough points? Can they beat LSU? We'll see. But this Florida game is going to be a good test because Florida also plays really good defense. But Florida needs to establish a running game if they want to have a chance in this game. Kyle Trask, the backup quarterback, because we all know Felipe Franks got injured in the Kentucky game, and he's out for the season. But this Trask kid has been doing a pretty good job. I think he's a more efficient passer than Franks was, honestly. So their offense is coming alive, but it's going to be a classic game, I'm hoping, and I'm excited to watch it. There's some other good games this weekend. So it should be fun. The Ohio State-Michigan State game, I think, might be a little more interesting than people think, although I do really think that Ohio State is going to beat them pretty bad. This probably is the best team Ohio State's played, though. Last year, or last week, sorry, everyone was hyping up Nebraska. I don't know why Nebraska was getting hyped. Makes no sense to me. Scott Frost is a good coach, but a lot of other coach, coaching changes happened that same year. And it's not like Nebraska's recruited anybody. So the idea that they were just going to be good last year or this year, just I, I don't get it. But anyway, Ohio State destroyed Nebraska last week. I have a feeling they're going to beat Michigan State by at least two touchdowns. But if they don't, it'll be interesting because let's say that game's close. I think Ohio State wins no matter what. I'd be shocked if Michigan State won. But let's say it's a close game. It's a one-touchdown game or maybe a two-touchdown game because Ohio State gets a late one. Is that going to say more about Ohio State or Michigan State? Is that going to make people think, oh, maybe Ohio State isn't this great team that we thought? A lot of people think Ohio State's number one right now. 
So would that change your perception of Ohio State or would that change your perception of Michigan State? Michigan State does have a loss. They lost to Arizona State, who looks decent out in the Pac-12. So that game could change kind of how we see the Pac-12. I love games where a lot of perception change can happen. And that's what I think is fun about this week. There's not a lot of big matchups, but specifically that Ohio State and Michigan State game has a lot of possible perception changes that could come out of that outcome, especially if Michigan State wins. Holy cow, that would change a lot of things. And then Florida and Auburn too, like I said, there's a lot of perception stuff going to come out of that game, even though on paper the loser of that game still alive. If Ohio State did lose to Michigan State on paper, they'd also still be alive. Now Michigan State, if we're talking playoff, can't really afford to lose that game. There's an outside chance they can still win their division if they lose that game, but then they'd have to hope Ohio State lost twice. So it would be really tough for them if they if they lose to expect them to win a division or to make a New Year's Six game or anything like that. But expect Antonio and Michigan State to give a, their best effort because they know their season's kind of on the line here. So anyway, that's all I got this week. Like I said, I'm working on a big, big podcast where I want to really get into this pay-for-play stuff. I think it's the most pressing issue in college football right now, the thing that could change it all, hopefully for the better, hopefully not for the worse, but we'll have to see. So look for that coming out maybe next week whenever I, I just want to make sure I do it right. So I'm going to take my time on that one, do a lot of research, even going to hit up some law buddies of mine to really go over that bill so I get the ins and outs of it down like the back of my hand. And yeah, I'll see you guys later. Thanks for listening. <laughs>